Perfect. Four lights. I love right. it. Aiden, are you a Star Trek fan? Like, did you ever watch Next Generation? No, I haven't watched anything Star Trek. <gasps> oh, yeah. my. I'm a little oh. behind on my nerdum a little bit. I'm, I'm in the same bit. I've watched very little Star Trek. So the whole time we were doing the four lights joke, which, Hayden, you don't get. And <laughs> did you not get the joke? Yeah, that's why I asked about it last time. You're like, every time, four lights. And I'm like, what, what the fuck are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, next thing we're covering is... Uh, Star Trek. <laughs> well, welcome everyone back to Pen Pen Pals for our coverage of Gundam The Origin. And this is episode five. As always, I'm Alex and with me are my two co-hosts. Hi, this is Brian. Hey, this is Ben. And we're very happy to have another guest with us today, first timer with us, and a host of their own podcast, uh, Mr. Hayden Workman. Yay. Hello, everyone. I am indeed Hayden Workman. So this is kind of a fun thing. So our last guest, Alex Zalbin, he was also a content creator, but also a member of a trio and We're Bad at Games, which was your gaming podcast. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, tabletop gaming we would talk about video games. We'd talk about tabletop games. We would play something on our podcast, and that usually was a tabletop game. But we also okay. played a couple of video games. All right. Renaissance gamer. Yeah, we, we played, played Zork. Zork. Hate... <laughs> Zork? I love Zork. Return yeah, Zork. we played Zork. Zork? Oh yeah. Zork? We played what? Zork for four episodes, and it's really hard. So Pen Pen Palace is a, is a trio of hosts, and Hayden, um, We're Bad at Games was three hosts, yep, right? Three hosts, yep. But wasn't there like a mysterious, <laughs> maybe mythical fourth host? Yeah, it was a very much a mythical host. Uh, we had a buddy, Kyle, and we called him our producer seducer extraordinaire. We would just <laughs> kind of joke around that he was never on mic whenever he had something contribute to the conversation. And it turned <laughs> into just like an ongoing thing that we had to have him on at some point. And that's how we finished um, one season was he was on the last guest we had. Was it 52 episodes? It was, it was exactly 50. Okay, so I listened wow. to 49 episodes convinced <laughs> that Kyle was not a real thing, was just this joke. And then all of a sudden, spoiler alert, if you're up for a 50 episode ride, he yep. comes on on the final episode. He's real, indeed real. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe no, that. That is a twist. I'm, I'm still not sure if I believe you. I haven't heard any of this, but I'm like, no, they just went on and like processed one of their voices or something. That it's bec it's become possible. even better since I guess like the whole like Mountain Dew Kyle like meme of like Kyle's like this go-to person of just like another Chad. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of added to the mysteriousness, but he is a real person. Now, he was your producer slash seducer <laughs> or was he a producer of producer? Oh, it was it was just a fun rhyme. Uh, we might have even taken it from another podcast. We, he's such a good friend of ours and we wanted him to be included. And so we just said he was our producer, seducer extraordinaire. Um, and uh, well, someone has a t-shirt that has that on it. So it might be. <laughs> no. Maybe we did take it from another podcast. I'm not sure. Now, if he had actually uh, seduced the guitarist for Guns N' Roses, that would have been amazing. <laughs> All right. That joke landed better in my head. <laughs> it landed for someone out there. All right. So you have a lot of experience with games. Mm -hmm. Do you have much experience with anime? Uh, have you watched it a lot before? Like, Do you have any formative works that really influenced you? Yes. I would say it's my, I don't know, my closet interest, just in the sense mm. that I don't have... 
enough friends to talk about it where I currently live. Mm. I, I love anime. I started watching anime. I was like typical teenage kid growing up on Cartoon Network watching Toonami. Started watching Dragon Ball Z. Uh, then from there, as I learned how to use the internet, started finding all the other incredible anime shows uh, that are significantly better than <laughs> Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> it definitely still has the nostalgia for me. Mm-hmm. And then probably in college, you know, when you're super experimenting, you just dove straight into all the, like the, the classics. And then Brian and I kind of reconnected after my college years. And that's when I think Brian really got into anime. And then I had someone that I could talk about it with. And so I say in the past five years is probably the most anime I've consumed. <laughs> I won't ask you what your favorite anime is, but what would be a good desert island anime for you? A desert island anime. Oh, I also sometimes think of like anime just through like categories. So like mm-hmm. if I want to think of something that, you know, I really want to feel something on a desert island, I'd say Black Lagoon. Oh, um, wow. Hmm. So you just want to real, real feel really bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with that one. Can you give oh, us the, the elevator pitch? Yeah, it's, it follows this awesome, innocent guy. And he is captured by modern day pirates. And he becomes part of their crew in order to stay alive. And he just starts befriending these people that like are like evil. But then you get to know their stories of why they're pirates and take advantage of other people. It's usually because they were taken advantage of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so you watch his journey as this innocent Japanese businessman getting to know these people, becoming friends with them. And you know, you know what happens from there when you see like the darkest parts of human evil, but yeah. you have a relationship with all these people. So it's all the feels. Yeah. It's mm. kind of an awakening show, I guess. Like it, it, Dives into the nature of crime. Yeah, sounds straight up my alley. Not yeah. a lot of happy endings. That sounds perfect. Yeah, I know, but it is good. Uh, then another okay. category, if I just want to have fun, I'd probably currently would choose Haiku. The volleyball anime that's gotten oh, yeah. attention. I was just so impressed. Like I used to play a bunch of volleyball, and so I understood it enough. But man, they make volleyball so much more interesting than it really is. <laughs> if you're, like Even people that aren't into it could watch that show and be like, whoa, I want to play volleyball. <laughs> well, so that leads me to my next question. Like there is an interesting intersect with anime and gaming. So there's anime about yeah. games. Uh, what comes to mind for me is March comes in like a lion about Shogi. There's one, gosh, it came out last year. It's about uh, a high school club of people yes. just exploring tabletop gaming. Mm-hmm. God, I can't remember the name of it. I forget it too. You're the one who told me about it too. <laughs> but it's I cool because totally they, they actually play real world games. Yes. Like each episode, it's like you get to learn how to play a new tabletop game, which is the most difficult part of learning tabletop games. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So did you ever play any like anime themed games that you really enjoyed? I definitely played a bunch of Dragon Ball Z games. My favorite were more of the like the RPG side of it than just like this classic Street Fighter. And then I've researched a bunch of like sword art online games. Mm-hmm. I just never could convince hmm. to invest in one. It's an interesting point though, Brian. I hadn't really thought about that. And I mean, you do have, you know, so you have like Pokemon that maybe got most famous as an anime, but, you know, based on a Game Boy game. Um, then you have, yeah, animes like Fantasies. Wait, you just said it. Fantasy Sword Online? Is that what it's called? Sword Art Online, yep. Sword, yeah. Sword on, oh, you're thinking Art of Fantasy Online, Star that's like all Online. about gaming. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. mixing those two up. But there, there is a lot of like crossover there and maybe they kind of map onto those 
sports animes because it's often about someone becoming like a a champion of the game or their quest to become the best, right? I wanna be the very best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not getting paid for this plug. I'm not sponsored by Made RPG, but uh, there's a local convention here in uh, the DC area called Katsukan. And I spend most of my time in their gaming room and they had a JRPG called Made. Hmm. And uh, it's sort of meant as a quick introduction uh, to people who aren't used to playing tabletop RPGs. It's like you sit down and you roll a bunch of dice to create a character and the whole setup takes only about five minutes. Wow. And then you can immediately get into gaming. And uh, I played a maid who uh, her special ability was she was able to eject her guts as a projectile attack. (laughs) I feel like that power is counterintuitive because then you have to clean a bunch more up. (laughs) Well, my character drinks a lot of water, so her guts are clean to begin with. (laughs) Okay. Um, Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) This is a complete non sequitur, but uh, something about that story about the, the guts and then maybe also just the anime nostalgia from beforehand triggered in me a memory of Eat Man. Do you guys remember that that manga, Eat Man? Who's like at like Borders and Barnes and Nobles at some point when they like were first stocking manga. And there's this guy whose power was that he could like recreate out of his body anything he had eaten. Whoa. And so he would like eat guns and stuff. (laughs) To then later on be able to turn his hand into a gun so that reminds me of another manga like is this a whole genre of manga where yeah um probably like a a cat detective and whatever she ate she would have the memories of whatever she ate it sounds like chew oh my god oh when did chew come out oh i don't know probably much later than that chew's fairly recent was it a cat girl detective chew no it was a regular detective okay He, he, well, he could only eat beets because everything (laughs) (laughs) everything else he ate, he like intuited everything that had ever happened to it. So like if he ate a carrot, even he would taste like the farmer's hand and the fertilizer. So he becomes a detective because he could eat a piece of a dead body and be like, okay, this is what happened to them. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Very gross. All right, we are way off Gundam now. So we start with uh, a recap, and I can't remember if we've had this in episodes before, but like there is a like previously on, which lasts longer and longer in every episode. But then we actually have previous shots uh, at the beginning of the episode from the last episode, and there we go into a little bit more detail of them. Mm I was going to say, I was really into this recap. I thought it was kind of clever the way they did it. It's almost like, um, you know, the end of an episode of Scrubs or something where you're, you're seeing all of these different storylines, but there's like narration on top of it, tying it together. And so they mm-hmm. kind of delve into the individual motivations of these different characters and, and kind of maybe spell out some stuff about their motivations you might have missed, or you kind of see them juxtaposed against one another. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, this is cool. I don't think I've ever seen this in like a kind of recap. Yeah, I've yeah. never seen this in any anime before. And I do have mixed feelings about it. Because sometimes the narration, it's narrating over a scene and the way it's timed, it gives you this misleading idea. But um, in this one, it begins with, with this question, why do people fight? Yeah. And that really set my mind in a certain trajectory going into this episode. Yeah, it's funny. This spot 
of the show. I watched, so I watched this episode twice, once dubbed and once subbed. And mm-hmm. when I watched it dubbed, I just skipped the recap because it was the fifth episode. I knew it was happening. I knew they were mm-hmm. multiple minutes long and yeah. I completely missed it, experienced the show and then watched it subbed and wanted to experience the fullness of the episode and realized like, whoa, my whole outlook on this episode has changed now that I've experienced <laughs> this particular oh. recap because mm. it just lays a very, like it puts up these guardrails of how you're supposed to really watch this episode, I think. Well, Ben and Hayden, if the two of you can indulge my curiosity, since you're sort of the, the newcomers to Gundam The Origin, at this point, um, how do you summarize people's motivations? I, I don't know if there is anything like that particularly stuck out, but I, but I do think it really like sets up the theme of the episode, right? Like not only are they kind of highlighting previous stuff about like why do people fight so far in the series, but then that's like a conversation that gets like hit on. Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like I was aware more of thinking through Char's reason for fighting. And this episode really brought like the cast of the universe into that light of like, oh, let me think about all these other people that, you know, I just might glance over because you know, this is the origin of Char. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess his motivation, it seems from this intro, is like revenge, basically, right? Because I think they give us a flashback of him as like a kid, like saying that he'll make them bow down before him or... Yeah, he's like, these are our, our enemies. My enemy, your enemy, even mother's, everyone's enemy. Our mom's met enemies. And yeah, it's like, I will yeah. kill <laughs> So, so question for everyone, like, is there one person's motivation that you are more sympathetic with or view more as insidious? I mean, I always just identify with or, or admire. It's not someone who fights physically, but who fought and sacrificed everything for her children, uh, Astraya. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I also feel like Artesia mm-hmm. comes off as, as pretty centered, I don't know, compared to a lot of the characters. I was just going to add Garma to it um, and just like carrying mm. the weight of the family expectation. <laughs> I think especially to like rise above his older siblings. Oh, I didn't have older siblings, but to like get the attention of a father, that was, that was really, really close to home. <laughs> so it's interesting at this point now between Garma and Char, Garma seems like the one who's in the most dangerous situation in terms of needing to play their game carefully. Mm-hmm. Char seems like, He's doing okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> other people's uh, plots and schemes uh, are pretty transparent to him and you can sort of maneuver around them. Mm-hmm. But I don't even think, I don't know how much, how aware Garma is of like what Giran and Kaecilia are capable of. He's not aware at all. <laughs> not at all. He's a child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode is episode five, Clash at Loom. Mm. And as you so wonderfully, elegantly put it in uh, our outline, Brian, uh, it's kind of a series of character vignettes. Uh, We spend kind of an inordinate amount of time with individual characters in this episode, and we get an almost equal amount of time with each of them, which is not usually the case. And we start with... Amuro. And one could think that this vignette is really about Amuro, but I actually thought it was more about Kai, right? And Mm -hmm. we get a kind of a hint to that with the opening lines of it, where our little robotic Jiminy Cricket (laughs) is telling Amuro that Kai is a bad egg and urging Amuro to be a good boy. I really want to remake this show where uh, Tem is Geppetto and he has a real (laughs) son. (laughs) 
but he insists on making this giant puppet instead. That's great. I feel like you could have a story there where it's like, you know, the the inventor that makes the mecha also like makes his son, but his son doesn't know that he's a robot. And then it's like, why is he so good at piloting it? And it's like, he was a robot all along. (laughs) The robots are piloting the robots. Yeah, it's Astro Boy plus Gundam. It's the synthesis of Tamino's works. It's amazing. And if you go by just the Gundam novel, then Char fits very nicely into the fairy godmother role. Okay, well, next project. (laughs) (laughs) Kai and the boys, uh, they have stolen a tractor from somewhere and they are going to take it to the the restricted zone of the colony because Kai doesn't believe that it's just a construction site, which like, you know, he's kind of a shithead. He's mean to people, but he doesn't respect authority, which like I can identify with. And he puts all of his friends in grievous danger, but we see that uh, the Federation forces are more interested in state secrecy than public safety. You know, there are warning signs, but they don't give a verbal warning before opening fire with (laughs) a whole range of automatic weaponry, which very well could have killed all of them. And I was like, why didn't they take a car? Oh, it's a good thing they didn't just take a car. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The Uh, tractor seems out of place. I I definitely didn't see that twist coming when the like automated turrets started firing on them. I was like, oh, (laughs) fuck. I thought we were going to see what was in this tunnel. (laughs) Yeah. So just a little background on this that's that's not in the, the anime. So side seven only has two colonies in it where we're used to seeing other sides have like dozens and dozens and they're both in a state of being under construction, so like technically not open for colonization, and they are both host to certain Federation activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the implication here is that where Amuro is, it's like a military base, and mm-hmm. the people there are either you know military families or just the personnel to serve the people on the base. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't know a lot about what's going on with Kai's background, but... My suspicion is that he's a military kid and is maybe angry about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I think I also saw like side seven is like the direct opposite in terms of like space as side three, mm-hmm. which was an interesting, just like geographical foil to the Xeon colony, especially with like where Char starts and where Amuro starts. Mm-hmm. And and as you said, the staff that's there, even if they aren't military, they're definitely on the payroll or in league with the military because mm-hmm. when we get back to the classroom and we have all of these grievously injured students, the whiteboard just says, be quiet. <laughs> and the teachers looked fairly traumatized. Like yeah. they just were at the receiving end of something. Yeah, and then we, we pretty swiftly move along to uh, Ramba Rawl, uh, who has just completed a successful, though morally questionable campaign, assaulting not military targets, but any colony that had expressed anti-Zeon sentiments, right? Mm-hmm. So I tried to get some verification on this, but I couldn't find it. But my impression was that Rawl was not fighting Federation. He was just fighting local security. Uh, which continues to be the case, uh, as we'll see in Operation British. But Dozel is giving a direct order to Rawl to begin preparations for Operation British, uh, a horrific plan to stop the war in one fell swoop. Um, but Dozel has this conflict with Rawl. I, I really love this scene yes. uh, because Dozel 
is like losing his moral compass. Mm-hmm. And Rawl is someone who he actually has looked to for, if not guidance, like some sort of moral guidepost. Absolutely. So that, that's an interesting social moment. Like it's like this crisis moment when you realize you're not aligned with like one of your friends or something. Oh yeah. And anyone who's ever changed their political beliefs, become radicalized one way or the other, or found themselves in a new religious belief or something like that. I think Raul handles it as probably as best as he could. Mm -hmm. But so Raul, Raul doesn't have much like moral high ground, right? So we just talked about how like, he's just gone around destroying entire colonies if they Mm -hmm. weren't Xeon supporters, right? Yeah, it's like kind of in the midst of following that order, he realizes this isn't what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. I mean, really like his motivation was why do people fight? His is glory or pride. He's a and soldier. He's a soldier. And when he realized like this isn't actually a, a war, there's no glory in this. It's just slaughter. He loses his will to fight. So is this the real fall of the house of uh, Raal? Mm. The final straw, yeah. So, so what they're debating here, so they don't tell us this up front, right? We kind of come in the middle of the conversation, but it seems as you watch through the episode that what they're debating is taking this colony and launching it towards Earth. Mm-hmm. So Dozel is making the, the argument like, look, we were going to blow up this colony anyway. Like these civilians were going to die, but mm-hmm. we can also use them as a weapon. Mm. And it's like, it doesn't seem like Rawl is necessarily objecting to sending this thing towards Earth. It's almost more like, like he's fine with conventional warfare, but Mm -hmm. this like is, this is kind of like a like dirty move or something like this, right? This is like off the script of normal warfare. And he's like more objecting to that than the civilian deaths or something was kind of how I felt. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with that. As much as I like Ramba, he's not like this pinnacle of morality, but he he's very steadfast in what he believes and his, unlike Dozel, right? And I, I love the juxtaposition of the two of them. Dozel looks in this scene, especially yes. like he's twice- Ramba's size, but Ramba is shorter, squatter, and more stable. Mm-hmm. It just was a very funny move to have him hit the machine and the like electricity <laughs> is like pumping up his arm. It's, it's definitely an image, but it's, it's it's a little goofy for how uh, how serious their discussion was. Yes. Oh my gosh. So this is like a tricky scene for me. This gets into uh, the influence of head cannon and sort of like altering my recollection of things Mm. so when i first watched this uh and looked back on it i had this recollection of dialogue that's not actually there Uh, really yeah like for me i was hearing rumble ral saying like if we do this our grandchildren are going to be fighting this war and i was a hundred percent convinced that i heard that and then when i was doing the notes i went back and I'm watching the dub. I'm like, oh, maybe it's in the sub. I watch the sub. Nope, it's not there. (laughs) That's a great line, though. But I think I I just internalized the scene so freaking much. You know, just the more I thought about it, like uh, my own thoughts about it got integrated with my my memory of this episode. Hmm. I guess what weighs on me there is just thinking about like drastic measures taken in warfare and just the long-term repercussions of it. Yeah, and then tragically, uh, but in one of my favorite, the uh, least consequential, but one of my favorite scenes in the entire OVA, uh, we go inside of Island Ifish and we meet two characters, uh, Fang and Yuki. And 
their young potential lovers and they don't really know what's about to happen to them. Uh, their emotions are really high because, you know, they've been, it seems like they've been friends for a while. They really know each other and there's a lot of uncertainty. They're being called to go into this uh, shelter or, or defend the colony. It creates this intimate, quiet scene between the two of them mm -hmm. where they share with each other their heritage like yuki says you know i'm i have some japanese blood in me so like i you know some of my ancestors hail from japan i'd really like to go down there they have all these dreams maybe dreams of a relationship or a future together and people who have watched this or people who are paying attention to the scene before like we know that those dreams aren't gonna happen yeah yeah, they look a lot like Frau and Amaro. Oh, wow. Uh, it, we just get such an intimate picture of them. Like, it's short, but, you know, he's on this uh, bus and he jumps off while they're on the highway onto what looks like a, a Datsun hatchback <laughs> or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, Brian, you say that because when I first watched it with uh, Yuki, because I, I haven't seen the original series still. And so I was just like, oh, this is going to be a cool origin story of one of the other Gundam pilots. Oh, no. yeah, I, I felt the same way. He had that presence way. of just like recklessness Damn. and just like charisma that you're just like, this guy is going to be awesome. And then, man, do does reality set in. Yeah. And I think you were just saying, Alex, like, you know what's going to happen to them, but you're just so used to this kind of story and they really like string you along where you're like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, you know, it's, it's filling up with this gas, but like everyone else is unconscious, but he's like through sheer willpower, finding a way to like make it and he like gets to the door. And I kind of expected like, then you'd see a shot of inside and like they had a separate air supply and they were all safe and he was gonna find a way to like get them off. But you're like, you're looking and the shot is really dark. So it takes you a second to see what's like going on. And you're like, wait, fuck, is everyone dead? Mm -hmm. Oh God, like everyone's dead. And you're like, all right, I guess that's the end of these characters and i don't know i thought it was it was really effective it reminds me again of this this youtube video i saw about like the real cost of war the individuals that are just the collateral damage of war like bright minds and big-hearted people that could have gone on to innovate or influence or invent and could have set if not the world at least their communities in a different trajectory but no there's war and mass death mm-hmm uh, and totally unnecessary, right? I mean, like we can talk about war is unnecessary, but the gas attack specifically, yeah. completely unnecessary, right? The commander who's ordering the gas attack, who is put in charge of this operation instead of Ramba, he says to him, almost to himself, yeah. kind of trying to convince himself, right? He says it to like his second in command, but he's trying to justify like, well, they wouldn't want to see the earth hurtling towards them. That would be too terrifying. But if you ask me if I wanted to die hurtling towards the earth or die in a gas attack, uh, that were, there would be no question. I would rather die hurtling towards earth. Mm. It's, it's kind of interesting. We've talked about kind of parallels between World War One and World War II. I think one thing was in World War One, we developed like nerve gas and we mm. we used that as a weapon. And then by the time World War II came around, I'm, my history might be off, but I think between World War One and World War II, we banned the use of like chemical warfare. I was over mustard gas. Yeah. Yeah. There is something that does feel very cruel about this, but I don't know why exactly, right? Like it feels somehow like extra unfair or there is like, nothing these people could do to save themselves. 
But I mean, like, I don't know if I would rather get shot or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. The accounts of uh, mustard gas specifically and uh, some other gas weapons used during World War One. this is actually a whitewashed version of that because oftentimes soldiers wouldn't die for days. They would just start choking to death on their own phlegm. And- so, so maybe that was why we banned it was, was kind of like the more specifics of, of how those weapons acted. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a thought about this, but it's pretty polarizing. And if it's too polarizing, we can edit it out later. But uh, this all kind of speaks to me about the unnecessarily cruel nature of war and also just military mindset. Like the military mindset is like you shoot and kill in force to get your agenda. So here we have this colony, it's going to face mass extermination to be used as a weapon of mass destruction. And realistically, the military could allow for everyone to be evacuated. Like we see later in episode one Mm -hmm. of the main series that a mobile suit blows up and it creates a giant hole in the colony and all the air is leaking out, but they have enough time to evacuate everyone. They could have done something like that. They could have Mm -hmm. waged war on a colony, allow the natural refugee process to go about and it would it be about the same fuss as whatever it is they did to exterminate this colony. So mm-hmm. the real world comparison in my mind, what jumps out at me is uh, the bombing of Nagasaki. Uh, mm-hmm. The Japanese Imperial Army had a two hour heads up that Nagasaki was going to be the second target and they chose not to alert or evacuate the people. Yeah, same thing happened on the other side of the war. Uh, An English city was not evacuated because they couldn't let the Germans know that they had broken their code yet. That's right. Uh, Yeah. And in this very same episode, like you said, completely unnecessary. There are Xeon supporters who are allowed to leave a colony before the fighting begins Mm -hmm. there. And this, this is my criticism of military mindset. And I don't mean the U.S. military. I mean military culture, right? Mm -hmm. There's a dozen different ways you could have evacuated a city without giving away that you broke a code. You could start fires and you could generate media frenzy about, oh, we got to get the fuck out of here because there's gas mains or whatever, Mm -hmm. anything. It's just a lack of imagination because all the mental capacity is redirected towards force and violence and coercion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think too, there's like a, maybe like an incentive problem where like, I mean, you can say all you want mm-hmm. that you want to like lower civilian casualties and stuff like that. But like kind of in an all out war, like World War Two, I mean, they might be saying that they're trying to do that, but then also knowing that like, you know, civilians are being used in the war effort to manufacture and whatever. And mm-hmm. well, anyway, there's yeah. a, there's a relevant story that I can't conjure. <laughs> well, we, we can come back to it. I'm going to take yeah, a deep cleansing it. breath. <laughs> oh well, before you do that, uh, <laughs> oh, shit. well, I just want to get past the worst of the episode. The gas attack does happen, mm-hmm. and the colony is launched towards Earth, and. It is a failure. Mm-hmm. The objective of the colony drop was to destroy a military base, Jaburo, uh, under a thousand meters of bedrock. But it completely misses its target because these fucking idiots uh, don't realize that it will break up as it enters the atmosphere. They could have grabbed an asteroid. Mm-hmm. 
like the way they describe it is even the one that falls in the ocean, which would be like, oh, well, thank goodness one of them fell in the ocean. No, that creates tsunamis. Mm -hmm. And when everything is said and done, it says that half the population of the earth is dead. So it's a complete failure as an operation, unless Giran's plan was not really to end the war. Mm. It's so horrible. So it's like, most of the people, they don't die from the impact of these three pieces of the colony. They die from like disease and starvation from the fallout. Ugh, that's terrible. Just to make it a little bit worse, uh, the way it works out in the novel. <laughs> uh, so Garen, like he is horrible. And it isn't like just one colony that he's trying to drop. He's trying to drop multiple colonies like Whoa. throughout the one year war. And his main military campaign isn't about engaging this fleet or that fleet, like Tiananmen or Revel. He sends his units out to just keep wiping out any colony that's aligned to the Federation. Mm -hmm. It's just civilian, one civilian target after another. Then his big thing, which, spoiler, if anyone hasn't seen Char's counterattack, uh, in the Gundam book, Giran's final thing is to drop Luna 2 on Earth. Uh -huh. His whole thing is like, this is the only way to achieve space node supremacy if all the earth nodes are gone yeah and that brings us pretty neatly into uh the next scene where Girin proposes his further plans to purge loom yes uh, an entire side which is another billion plus people and degwin the sovereign is like hey maybe you're a fucking madman like <laughs> do you want more death on your hands what are you trying to achieve here and if Girin was capable of being embarrassed, he would have probably been embarrassed in front of the other heads. But yeah. instead, he seems incapable of it, and Degwin leaves the room in frustration, calling Garma with him. And he really tries to force the room to be on his side mm -hmm. by freaking them out, saying, "Well, we're all going to be war criminals, so mm -hmm. we have to do. We have to finish it this way. We have to purge <laughs> them all." Yeah, it's such a dark way of doubling down. It's like we've already done such horrible things that we like have to keep doing horrible things now just to like right. save our own asses. So I've got some pretty sharp thoughts on this scene too. Um, so Guillermo is um, framing this as a holy war, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so previously we've already had uh, Daikun referred to as a prophet, and this feels very much to me like what the Japanese Imperial Army did leading up to World War II. So Guillermo is trying to take the teachings of Daikun and evolve it from what is, it's already a political philosophy and like elevating it to some kind of religious belief or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a popular perception of uh, the Japanese or at least the Japanese Imperial Army having a parallel perspective as like the Nazis as being a master race. And it's a misunderstanding. And like that's taken from this idea of uh, like extreme Shintoism that the Japanese are the master race. Well, that's completely not the case. Like, uh, Shintoism in, in this regard would be more like Egyptology, like Ra mm. is the incarnation of like Osiris or whatever their sun god was. And that's like the old school way that, that Shintoism worked, that the emperor was uh, the incarnation of the highest Shinto deity. Um, and butcher the name, Amaretsu or something like that. Mm -hmm. But the people were not. And the way that um, this religious spiritual ideology was intentionally warped was um, because they, the, the military needed the, the entire nation to be on board. Uh, so there was an extremist cult called the cult of Michiren. And the idea was that people could be like the cells in the body of the emperor. 
Like you can be huh. an extension of the emperor. And then that idea was pitched and promoted. If there's any sort of like going to heaven or nirvana or moksha or paradise, it's if you become a part of the emperor's body. <laughs> and like, that's where the weird religious bend comes in. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so we'll take over the Manchurian Peninsula or Korea or this and that, the Pacific Islands. And those people will be lucky because they will then become one with the emperor. So it's not a master race thing. Okay. Anyway. Which, which really uh, helps understand or kind of empathize with the kamikaze tactic. It really. Oh, plus methamphetamine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Something interesting with kind of this religious term with with daikun. Um, So just to think about his name for a little bit. So, so dai is a prefix that's often used for big in Japanese. Kun is a suffix sometimes for, uh, it's kind of like a lot of times like young men or or adolescent boys is kind of like a masculine suffix. So daikun could be something a little bit like Mm. big brother. Big brother is watching you. Uh, but, oh. but if you're literally translating the Japanese into English um, using like the Hepburn Romaji, it would be D-A-I-K-U-N. But they don't do that. It's D-E-I-K-U-N, which would normally be like Daikun if you're mm. kind of like literally translating it. And I was like, why did they do that? It just like seemed weird. That is and I was thinking about it. And I'm pretty sure that's for like deity like they're, they're yes. kind of putting mm. that English prefix for, for God into the name. And, and then we see this kind of like turn of, of him becoming more of a, a religious figure. Yeah. Wow. All right. I, I can add another layer to this onion. Uh, so <laughs> D-E-I in Japanese, I'm checking out the word hippo right now, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that to me would speak to this um, new type ideology. Oh my gosh, do they love their wordplay? Yeah. Very interesting. Incredible. Right on. So, Girin and Degwin are very clearly thinking opposite ways about this war now. And that leads pretty neatly into Dozel going home. This is where the theme that seemed emergent to me in this episode of Cycles came in. Uh, because this scene with Dozel, his his wife Zena, and Mineva, even color-wise, uh, even the roles they play, it's very similar to Daikun's last night. Um, he has this long night of the soul. He's inconsolable. And the only thing that brings him some sort of solace is his daughter. Yeah. Again, we have a, a blonde, blue-eyed wife and mother mm-hmm. uh, trying to make sense of what her uh, uh, manic husband is saying. Oh, and, very and familiar scene. Time, yes. Telling him like, hey, 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 your daughter's asleep. Can you calm the fuck down, yeah, dude? Yeah. And and uh, he he is consoled by his daughter a little bit, but it, it's still not enough. And and maybe the difference there is that Dozel and Maneva may not be new types. And Dozel, because Maneva is his only moral guidepost, he internalizes that and he makes that his only goal. Hmm. I can't see why anything else is good or bad, but I can agree with myself that keeping my daughter safe is good. Hmm. And it brings him through a line of logic, which is very uncomfortable because he thinks, well, how many Manevas did I kill? How many daughters? How many sons? And the only way he can reconcile this is that might makes right. I was strong enough to protect my daughter, which means those who weren't 
strong enough to protect their daughters. Well, they deserve to die. And so he unintentionally sides with Girin, and he's going to keep siding with Girin as they go forward. Yeah, and I think you have the the look of his wife and then the baby starts crying as, as kind of like the, the show signaling that his logic isn't correct. This is not the, the takeaway, right? Right. But this is just his, his twisted logic. I also noticed in this in this scene the the way they animate tears in this show. It's like everyone in the future has these super powerful tear glands that just shoot out their tears like sprinklers. It's, it's really pretty incredible. So I'm gonna get the saying wrong, but something about uh, you can't show someone how they're wrong if their job or their paycheck depends on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So this is the safest conclusion for Dozel, right? It's safer to mm-hmm. align with Giran. It's safer to justify. It's safer for his own conscience to justify mm-hmm. what he's been a part of now. And I hadn't thought about, you're absolutely right, uh, Ben, like he wakes up Maneva twice. And the second time he wakes her up is when he declares his new moral mm-hmm. uh, direction. Uh, which I didn't think about that, like the the volume of his voice upsetting her, but literally the content of his words upsetting her too. That's really, ugh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. It's also interesting just, I think, thinking about like military culture again, just like the consequence to toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Like the moment when he's able to connect with his emotions and realize, I think I've betrayed my consciousness there's no rhythm of life to enter that space. Mm. So he has to dig deeper. And also his older, older brothers, Garen, older, yeah. mm-hmm. he's gotten, yeah. he's also gotten to him saying like, we're going to be war criminals. So he just, he has to oh, yeah. give the investment to this darker side of this war. And this is the justification he gets to. You something, the correlation you're making between Dozel's scene and the original scene in episode one with Daikun and his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of set me on this like, conspiratorial train of thought <laughs> because Dozel is not like the other siblings. Right. And we know that Daikun was having trouble having kids with his original wife and that they were like a group within a group at the very beginning. I was like, Hmm. I was thinking like, what if Dozel was actually uh, Daikun's son? Wait, what? that's where I was going with that. I totally missed that. Oh, wow. That's what, that's what I was alluding to. Like my Whoa. conspiratorial mindset was taking me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So that kind of brings us to act two. We move away from the Zabi family. And now we're going to check back in with some very important characters. Uh, we find that Sela Moss, uh, she has relocated to Loom, where there is a coming conflict. Uh, she's working as, I think she's a doctor at this point. Yeah, she's at the main hospital, the general, the Loom General Hospital. Um, and we see how she has aged. Like she is a very confident, uh, not so young woman. I mean, she's probably in her 20s now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe fresh out of medical school. And uh, she's trying to help people when another figure from our past shows up, uh, Tachi O'Hara. Setting the political stage a little bit more. So I don't know if they actually mention it in the anime, but she is on the Miranda colony. Miranda's Bay. Yep. Mm -hmm. There's violent protest happening. And this Mm -hmm. is part of why the hospital is overwhelmed. 
And there's mm. also mass exodus happening, which is contributing to like the chaos of people getting hurt. Um, and this is the cover that allowed Tachi to come in and be able to have his conversation with Sela. Ah, uh, that's what he means. I was interested to learn his last name, O'Hara, coding him as Japanese-Irish. Uh, an interesting <laughs> and he is an intelligence officer now. But interestingly enough, it seems like he is not under the command of Kaecilia because there's no way what he's doing would be okayed by Kaecilia. Mm. Uh, so there seems to be multiple intelligence agencies operating within Xeon. Yeah, and just as a reminder, so so Lieutenant Tachi was the guy who helped smuggle Artesia off the colony. So there was that scene where they were in the uh, the loading box or the big shipping mm-hmm. crate, and he had to cover for the cat, and was very goofy back then. But now he's all uh, yes. grown up and and serious. He's very serious. So I, I just did a quick search. Um, there is a Japanese surname Ohara, so it might be a bad translation. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, he, he's still a little cryptic, right? But he gives her the news that she might want to follow the exploits of Char Osnabal and that Kosfal may in fact be alive, but does not bother to link the two ideas with her. He's like, but you can do with that information what, what you, you want. want. He's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, your brother is alive. And she's like, what? And then he's like, I mean, I don't know. I, I just have a feeling he is. And I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> don't, don't play with her emotions like that. Touch uh, with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, doing the right thing, but being a dick about it. Oh, and she gets a phone call at the very end, right? From Char's father, actually, mm, yes. Mr. Osnabal. But before we get to check in with that family, uh, we have a short scene where Char is trying out his brand new custom Zaku 2. The Black Tri Stars are doing a an inspection of their new mobile suits. Mm-hmm. And that's when Char like almost kills all of them yeah. with a little stunt. <laughs> Yeah, he comes in. You you wrote here everything is appearance, Brian, and I think that's that's a prescient thought for this scene. Uh, the horn, the color, the bravado. Char has learned from Kaecilia's example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting, like the hypocrisy of the black stars because they are not in standard uniform either. They've got mm-hmm. custom black uniforms. And um, I don't know if it was confusing to anybody, just like the pecking order, but they're equally ranked. They're, they're lieutenant commanders. And maybe that might be a sensitive point for the Black Stars because Char was discharged and then came back and then got a double, double rank promotion really quickly. So maybe just Char's presence like just diminishes what's significant to them. It's a bit like some confrontations between Goku and Vegeta. Vegeta wants to be the best, but Goku just wants to get the thing done, right? Like Char has loftier goals. Yes. We get our explanation of why every other mobile suit pilot is wearing a normal suit. Whereas Char, he just goes in in his uniform. He doesn't even have a helmet on, stating that if the suit goes down, he'll die just the same as if he was wearing a normal suit, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily true. But maybe that extra psychological motivation, thinking like death is always around the corner, is what allows him to push himself further than any other pilot. Yeah, he's all in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we get to go to Loom, or uh, yeah, Loom, uh, uh, side five, but specifically Texas Colony. Yes. Salem Mas gets back to one of her childhood homes. 
We get the shot of Mr. Diablo, who is bedridden because he's just had a heart attack and trying to recover. And for the first shot of him, he they don't animate his mouth, which I thought was right. quite jarring. <laughs> very interesting. Yes, it was very interesting. I thought it was a dub thing. And then when I watched the sub, I was like, nah, it's, it's just as jarring. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> but she checks in on him and then she has a, a conversation with Mr. Osnabal outside who reveals that they're going to get off of Texas Colony because they think that uh, aggression is going to, I guess, reach a fever pitch between Xeon supporters and Federation supporters. And he turns yeah. out to be right later. Yeah, yep. yeah. absolutely right. <laughs> uh, he should have left a little earlier or a little later, but yes, he's absolutely right. Yeah. They were so close. Um, yeah. And he, he also reveals that uh, his son hasn't written them any, any letters. It's an interesting echo of, you know, Artesia sending the letters to oh. her mom. And I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, yeah, so, you know, Cosball didn't send any letters to his mom, at least not that we saw. And that mm-hmm. seems to be enough now for Artesia to connect the dots. Yeah. So Roger Asimov doesn't question this, though. Like, from his perspective, it's all about his failure as a father. Mm-hmm. I'm getting the manga and the anime confused, but, like, he's heartbroken about um, the military hero that his son has become. Mm-hmm. The star of, like, the Zeon army and how many people he's killed. Like, he blames himself. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting that he, like, Sela has this intuition uh, about, like you said, uh, Ben, that connection between Char and Kosval, but uh, Mr. Osnabal has faith. His faith that his son is still out there and that if if they get off the colony, if they move to Zeon, he has faith that perhaps they will be able to reunite someday. If I can share a personal anecdote, I might cut this out, but um, I, I can understand not uh, not Mr. Asnabal's personal feelings, but I've been on the other side of that dynamic. Mm. When I came out as an atheist to my parents, my mother told me, well, then I have failed as a parent, which was a big sticking point for me for a long time. But uh, looking at Mr. Asnabal, I have some sense of closure over that because I understand like he, he has these strong convictions and it's not about me that he feels this. It is something internal. Mm. You know, He's not trying to comment on what he thinks are his son's choices, but he is commenting on how he feels about his son's choices. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard to process. I mean, he, he still loves his son, right? Like he, he wants the letters to come. He would, he wants the visits. Yeah. Um, It's messy, right? There's this added level of complication because he's also known as the father of Char Asnable, right? And (laughs) there are Federation aligned people at Miranda Bay just next door. Right. And speaking of Federation aligned people, we next move our scene to Admiral Revel. They actually launch from the surface of the Earth. So it's like a maiden voyage for this, uh, Mm -hmm. these cruisers. That's Jabiro, where they're leaving from? I think they're leaving from directly from Jabiro. I could be wrong. This, This massive deployment of ships is thought of as one blow to settle the war. And it seems like at least nominally, both sides uh, at least use this rhetoric of one big push to make everything stop. But as we see, it doesn't work. Uh, And this is spliced with, uh, what's the name, Girin uh, and Dozel talking to the other generals or admirals of the Xeon force. 
and telling them again. And actually this time it doesn't come out of Guren's mouth. It comes out of Dozel's, Dozel's mouth. He's interp or he's internalized this, uh, uh, this stance that we're already war criminals. So if you don't want to be tried in a military tribunal and hanged, then you're going to have to go along with our increased plans, uh, regardless of how inhuman it makes you feel. Uh, and we see on the faces of some of those generals, they're like, this is not what I signed up for. And you're like, well, it kind of is, but I can understand your reticence. Yeah, that makes me wonder if that is a, an actual thing from World War One or World War Two that that kind of logic was being used to justify stuff. I know specifically in the Nuremberg trials after World War II, the main guiding principle was if you could prove that a German officer engaged in things that allied officers did not engage in, then you could convict them. And there was actually a submarine commander who could prove that an allied submarine commander fired on uh, supply routes, and he actually had his case dismissed at the Nuremberg trials. Wow. So there's a little bit of an Easter egg for Gundam fans. Like, I think this might be the first time we see uh, Makabe. He's the one that looks yeah. like an older... Uh, he, he looks like an older Garma. He's got the same color hair, but... Um, like he's not in a like a military uniform. He's like another head of like a royal house and very like decadent and foppish. Mm -hmm. uh, just while Dozel's making his speech, he's just like, hmm. <laughs> it's like war crimes, you say. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get a, a, a very different scene. Again, we go through our cycles. Uh, our Ouroboros continues to eat itself. Uh, and we get to return to Club Eden. Where a trio gets to meet again. And what's strange is that Tachi and Ramba, they look older, they look more tired, but Haman is strangely, and maybe this is, you know, misogyny, like hot chick has to stay hot, but like Haman looks almost untouched by time. Mm -hmm. But we see that what hasn't happened physically to her has happened internally to her. When she sings her song this time, she sings almost about Ramba, but she sings it almost to Tachi. And the, uh, it may be as longing as her first song, but it's definitely sadder. Yeah. Yeah. The gender stuff in this is, is kind of interesting because, you know, women primarily are like mothers, wives, caretakers, right? Like, like things are very gender coded, maybe more than they were in Evangelion or, or FLCL, these earlier animes we've explored on this show. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, it feels like this whole show is like a takedown of masculinity that actually like the feminine characters nonetheless are the ones that like have the more reasonable impressions right mm -hmm. and it seems like a big thesis of this show is just like how horrible war is and how it's like kind of do i think we mentioned toxic masculinity before that's kind of like a lot of it has to do with like the toxic masculinity of these leaders but i'm not sure if that show is trying to kind of like have its cake and eat it too you know, it feels like it's still in some ways like valorizing or glorifying war or maybe like certain warriors who have like morals or better intentions or something. I don't know. And I, I haven't finished mm -hmm. this series. So I don't know kind of where it ends, but it feels like it's it's setting up a show that is like all about 
violence and war, right? Yeah. Like I can excuse some of the gender stuff because it feels mm -hmm. like the women share the show's perspective that war is this like toxic thing. Mm -hmm. It's saying, well, they're right about the fact that this war is evil. They're like not mm -hmm. choosing to participate in it. But at the same time, I feel like this isn't completely an anti-war thing. It also feels like sometimes it's like glorifying war or violence or or maybe it's just kind of like ambiguous about it. Like it almost sometimes treats it like it's just this inevitable thing that has to happen, right? Like it's this like big dance that we're all stuck in. Mm. So I am just now thinking of Gundam, at least this Universal Century ride, as like some sort of meta entertainment. Because I'll admit, I really do enjoy the mech fights, and mm -hmm. I really get caught up in the high drama of mm. uh, this, like the horror of war stuff. Not sure what to make of that. <laughs> well, I think that's what I, I think that's the breadcrumbs, right? Mm -hmm. I think Tomino is luring people in with like, hey, you like mech fights? Hey, you like war stories? Hey, you like uh, moral ambiguity? Well, I've got that in spades. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the end of the bread trail crumb, like if you are thinking about it and you try to come up with a thesis statement on it, the bad guy in Mobile Suit Gundam is not the zombies. It's war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Just, just reflecting on my ride. So like I started with Gundam, the origin went through the main series mm -hmm. by the end of Gundam unicorn. I was very outspoken about my convictions about war being the enemy. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, a year before that I was pretty moderate, uh, watered down in the way I would say things like just trying to like be like politically correct and, mm -hmm. uh, agreeable, I guess. Yeah. And, and that's mm -hmm. gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so so yeah. maybe this is yeah, it's more of a subversive show, right? And we're still at the the kind of early stages where they're reeling us in with kind of these classic story archetypes. Hmm. So yeah. just getting back to the way Haman is presented, um, I'm probably pretty generous with Gundam the Origin because, like, in my recollection, as far as any anime I've seen, this might be the thing with the least amount of fan service as I've experienced mm. out of any anime. Absolutely. Um, and I guess my perception of, like, the way she looks, I, I probably just chalked it up to, like, she's, like, I don't know what you'd call her exactly. Not a pleasure girl, but, like, she's in this certain role and probably has to be done up. Right. But, um, man, I just really got thinking about the way uh, – uh, femininity is portrayed in Gundam the Origin, and man, it's complex. Because uh, mm -hmm. immediately the first person I think of is Kaecilia, and we see that she can be very feminine <laughs> when she wants to. Usually, she's mm -hmm. about to kill somebody, but <laughs> and then like Salem Moss, gosh, she's got such a big heart, and like she has a really great moment in this episode yeah. um, mm -hmm. of feminine strength as like the nurturer, yes. protector, and even among like all this action that we just usually associate with like like masculine kind of stuff like she still uh, sheds tears and like feels like the individual deaths of people mm -hmm. and like feels like, killing people she shoots a dude in the head she shoots another guy who burns to death she just fully experiences all of it yeah she kind of is the opposite of dozel where she enters that space and stays there instead of removing herself mm, mm. that that's actually a perfect transition um 
the dream of a better life, uh, an easier time goes out with the neon sign of Club Eden, uh, this place where a revolution was uh, dreamed up. We see the last dying embers of it kind of fade away with the people who can remember. Mm -hmm. But then we go back to Texas Colony where there is the thing that the Osnabals were afraid of is happening. Just an amazing observation before I lose it. You were talking about Club Eden, where the original mm-hmm. revolution was being birthed. Yes. And then we cut to the Texas colony, specifically mm-hmm. Hotel Asnable, where mm-hmm. Char goes from being a child to an adolescent and is hearing the real Char. Like, so Edouard Moss is watching Char Asnable talk about the, the teachings of Daikun and wanting to join the Xeon military. And maybe that's where his revolution was born. Oh my gosh. The cycles in this this show are so good. The symbolism is so good because you're right. This this very hotel, Hotel Asnabal, is where Char made the decision yeah. as Casfall to commit violence for the first time. Well, I'm sorry. We have him in the gun tank, but we have him personally with, uh, uh, you know, he attacks this stalker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have now Sela making the same decision for different reasons. Uh, uh, but- kind of similar, right? Like Kosval would have justified his uh, violence by saying like, I'm protecting my sister. He's following us. And Sela justifies her violence in a similar way. These Some of these people who she grew up with are about to be slaughtered by what she perceives as a, a, a violent mob. And she decides to take up arms. And the same precision that makes her an exceedingly competent doctor is the same thing that allows her to protect these people. She Mm -hmm. is a a, a natural sharpshooter. Man, I just got goosebumps. I was thinking about uh, Crowley Haman's lyrics (laughs) as you you are uh, outlining this whole situation, you know, and like the stream of time and like these horrors that just keep coming back. And then like these precious things that never come back. Yeah, it's weird the way stuff echoes. So even when the uh, the riots are starting on the Texas colony, we get this shot of dogs barking, which then evoked in me the memory of when the dogs stop barking um, when they're in Spain, oh, right? Yeah. And, and so there the dogs yeah. going silent was the sign that something was wrong, something was happening. And here now the dogs barking are, are signaling that, that something is wrong. Great callback. Yeah, and and it kind of to me evoked like images of of crystal knocked, you know, these uh, windows getting broken and stuff like that. You know, in this case, it's political oh, violence wow. as opposed to to ethnic violence. It's it's this turning point where where things have become so divisive that civilians are getting involved. Have you guys talked about the choice to call the club Club Eden yet? No. <laughs> I've got some. I, I got well, some thoughts. Well, I think now's a good time. Oh, to- okay, yeah, I was just thinking. So, Club Eden, that scene where the lights are flickering, the light colors are different. So that's a difference from the first time we see every time where we enter this uh, space, mm-hmm. and then now it's flickering instead of staying on. But I was just thinking about Eden. You know, we. I guess we would, might often think of it as a place of refuge, mm-hmm. and that's easily you know a nightclub. But I think another aspect of Eden is just like the origin. If you think of like the biblical narrative, Mm -hmm. it is kind of where when you've thrusted out of Eden, Adam and Eve are thrusted out of Eden is when the story really begins. Mm. You know, we've been talking about the one year war. It's coming. It's coming. It's going to be the worst thing of human experience ever. And now like all of the players that have been set up in this show, the origin are now highly involved where we have uh, Selah Moss, 
you know, stopping her brother from yeah. committing violence. Mm-hmm. And then the club Eden sign goes out and yeah. we've been thrust. Everyone's been thrust out of Eden because the next scene is the person that was most anti-war, mm-hmm. the little sister picking up arms to defend. Oh gosh. The last bit of innocence gone. Yes. And, and then we got this episode, the rest of this episode and the next episode is all war. You know, we were fully out of Eden and we are in the one year war. Oh gosh. Yeah. Wow. Man. And Sela, she, she'd probably taken that oath to do no harm. All right. So the, the Zeon did Operation British. They dropped a colony on the earth. Half the earth's population is wiped out. And now anyone, like if you just happen to have been born on Zeon, now you're hated. Or if just someone thinks you were born on Zeon, oh, like you can't, yeah. you can't identify a, a Zeon sympathizer by mm-hmm. looking at them. Mm-hmm. It's up to this mob. Like all sorts of people get injured in this stuff because it's indiscriminate violence. Yeah. Because you cannot... Uh, uh, you cannot identify your supposed enemy. Yeah, it's it's really bloody and awful. Uh, and and we get an explosive end to it. Uh, you know, Sela, uh, they use whatever weapons they have inside of the hotel to defend it. And then after they're momentarily safe, uh, we go outside of the colony and the ship that the Asnaballs are on, it's almost there. And then a rocket from a mobile suit uh, ignites something and blows the dock and they die the way their son did. Yep. Oh God. Oh, yep. it's horrible. Yeah. And I think I would even add to that. It's probably definitely char. Cause we have the same like means um, when that guy recognized him as not char. Don't do this, he used rockets to blow up that tank. Mm. <laughs> We don't see the perpetrator, but we see the same method of the rockets and we see the same target of the Asnabalds. I didn't even think about that. These are two people that are left that could still identify them. So now Mm. there's no one left but his sister. And he actually, they have like, I don't know if it's just like an at a distance moment or if it's a new type moment, uh, but they see each other so close, but so far away. Know, showing like they're both uh, willing to commit violence, but for completely different reasons, right? Yes. Even their ideology is so close, but so far away. Um, and I just wish that Lieutenant Chachi's voiceover wasn't there because I felt it kind of cheapened this wonderful moment. <laughs> the series actually usually respects its audience quite well. Yeah, and, uh, and it's, a, it's a kind of parallel to the end of, of episode two where... Again, she's running across the grass of the Texas colony. <laughs> He's looking at her, and then he turns around and kind of goes off into into the darkness. You know, this time he's in in a giant yeah. red mobile suit, right? But but it's almost the exact same scene. I was kind of hoping that the episode would end there. I just thought that that was like right. an amazing moment, mm. and it was just such a parallel to episode two. This this episode is an hour and twenty minutes long. This is mm-hmm. like a, it's a big one, uh, and the next one too. And and you make up a, a, an amazing point, uh, Ben. The episode kind of does end there because that's that's a full cycle, right? We've come back to Artesia's sorrow, right? We've come back to this this point on the cycle, this uh, uh, this moment of suffering, this moment of abandonment, 
And I didn't even think about the, the, the perfect symmetry there. Again, Sela has just lost a parent mm-hmm. because I, I glossed over this, but Mr. Tiabolo has, uh, uh, in the excitement, he's essentially had another heart attack or something and mm-hmm. he, he, he's dead. Um, so she's lost everything again and her brother is flying away from her. The cycle should end there, but instead we have to go into a new cycle. Yeah. Uh, and we get, I think, just two more new scenes. The initial scene on the first episode, we could see that as just a bit of fan service, right? Let's show some some really clean, fast 3D mobile suit combat to really get people excited about this series. But it is a, a really important point that we're coming back up to. We saw it, but we didn't understand any context of that battle. And now we are coming up to it with a lot more context. We have an understanding mm-hmm. of both sides, what's at stake, who is suffering. Yep. And we get Garma and Degwin uh, aboard the Grand Degwin, which is uh, uh, Degwin's command ship, right? It too is uh, colored red, unlike the rest of the fleet. Mm-hmm. And we see the difference between like Garma has gone through actual combat, like at the edge of it, you know, he was commanding uh, uh, cadets in the field, but he's gone through actual combat and he still doesn't understand as they are watching the first volleys being fired in this uh, ship battle. uh, He freaks out the first time that one of their ships goes down and and Degwin has to tell him like, you don't get it. Do you like, Mm -hmm. We, we have to be back here. We can't die. And there's a short, a very short shot of Girin watching the coming conflict on like numerous monitors in his little fascist bat cave. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then we come on our last scene, which is Char preparing to engage, engage. the rebel fleet. Uh, which is the first mass, the first mass space battle deployment of mobile suits, right? And this is this is why that first scene in the series is so important, and why it's what it's trying to show us that this new technology is changing uh, the face of warfare. the The story has come a full cycle, but now Char in his mobile suit, going faster than any other thing before him. He's achieving escape velocity. The Ouroboros has consumed itself. And what we're seeing is the birth of a new century. Can I switch to Char for a second? But I think just going back to the way gender is portrayed in this show, I feel like Char is kind of an interesting character. So I feel like he is coded as effeminate and kind of androgynous, right? Mm-hmm. And a little bit in in some of the the early scenes, I don't know, like, am I reading into it by that there's a little bit of like a kind of like homoerotic tension between um, him and like Casball, or like mainly like him and the way he looks at Casball? And between him and Garma, you're spot on. Yeah, and, and so it's just kind of interesting that then he also is like one of the few male characters who then kind of speaks out against the violence and, and kind of like, like he's clearly like much more empathetic than a lot of the other male characters. Mm-hmm. So it comes out in the manga quite a bit more. Like Garma, once he eventually gets to Earth... Uh, he likes to have Char come over and take a shower and chat while they're bathing. And it's a, it's a strange thing mm-hmm. because it's one-sided. Like Char doesn't actually care about Garma. Like he's just using Garma 
Like, right. Hmm. I had one final thought taking us back to uh, the destruction of Miranda's Bay. I was just thinking about like the chaos of a transition period when a like a mil- military dictatorship starts rising to power. Lone dissenters go missing in the middle of the night, and then their families get black bags put over their head and they disappear. And then you know the political climate starts getting worse and worse, and eventually there's something like a mass exodus. I've seen that through the lens of like film with like the Killing Fields and like the rise of Pol Pot's uh, regime, but. Um, I, I went to school with a woman who uh, was Romanian and lived through uh, Nicolae Ceausescu's rise to power. And I apologize because I do not know any Romanian history at all. But she was saying that her parents were taken in the middle of the night and that she had to get herself when she was 13 and her uh, younger brother out of Romania. And wow. the way she described it was that things were bad and tense leading up to that. But when there finally came the time when everyone was waking up and like, we got to get the fuck out of here. Like that's, she said, that's when the most people died is like when there was this mass exodus of refugees. And uh, I don't know what research Tomino did, but like this scene, you know, that the chaos inside the colony, the chaos outside among the stars, those grand scopes, but you still see the very intimate loss of life. podcast which is uh, uh not currently running right yeah we've taken a little hiatus okay is there a, an episode that you are particularly proud of that you would recommend to people that were watching like a, a, a particular game you covered or whatnot oh man i think for me any episode where we're playing hatful boyfriend <laughs> is is a highlight for me so hatful boyfriend is a dating simulator where you play as a human, but everyone mm-hmm. on the planet are now birds of intellect. Essentially, you are going to high school as a human. Humans mm-hmm. are the subspecies, and you've got your choices of who you want to date that are pigeons, doves, turkeys. And so it's just a, a neat little story, but it is originally like made in Japanese. And so the translations can be hilarious. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but also okay. that just the concept of pigeons being the s- superior species is incredibly fun. I feel like I've heard a thing about this game before that. So you play a girl that just wakes up with amnesia in a cave and you don't know how you got there or what happened. Oh. Is that right? I, I think she understands in the game, but it, the backstory of the world is not given to you at all. Mm. Um so I'm not sure entirely about the amnesia, but but yeah, it's exactly like that. Humans have been pushed to the outside of society where they're living in caves and she is using her little moped to get to school. It's not weird that she's human, but it's ridiculous. <laughs> One particular episode that I thought was really endearing, you had a, a Japanese super fan. Yes. It did yeah, like some we, variation of Goodnight Moon. Yeah, so we had a couple super fans. One, Chie. Who probably will listen to this episode knowing that I was on it? Hi, uh, <laughs> GA. But she was she was incredible. She did some fan art for us for one episode, and then when we announced we were going on hiatus, she rewrote um, "Goodnight Moon" to say "Goodnight Weebag." Goodnight Weebag. Which was the acronym for our podcast, and uh-huh. she did a little voiceover and put it on YouTube for us, and we cried for sure. Uh, wow. Do, do you think she'd be interested in doing that? <laughs> <laughs> Does she like penguins? Stealing people's super fans, Alex. <laughs> she, well, she we might. need some of our own, damn it. She might. 
So, so, so you guys would put your stuff up on YouTube? No, we, yeah, we would just general podcasts. So you can find us on Spotify, Apple, all the major ones. Um, mm-hmm. and you can follow us on social media. It's been a little dark, but uh, it's just we're bad at games on basically everything. And um, we like to take recommendations uh, uh, from our guests. Yeah. Uh, so if someone enjoyed this, is there another anime or, or, or really any piece of art that, that you think they would also enjoy? Yeah. So I've been thinking about this and I think I landed on three in the terms of like back to the beginning of the episode when I say I think of anime through categories. <laughs> Let's peel them uh, off. But yeah. if you really liked this for Gundam, uh, because it was Gundam, I would say try Gundam Wing. It's very much like kind of a total rip, but it is, it's worth looking at all of the similar um, like anti-war themes, but there's a lot of callbacks uh, to the original series. And so it's fun to kind of re-experience it in a different world. And then the other one I thought of in this terms of like, do you want to see another kind of like stylized war that has an anti-war message would be Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Ooh, I like that one especially as it, it continues on and like there are some of the themes of some of the, the wars that happened previously in that world, like reminded me of just the futility of war, mm-hmm. um, the consequences of war. And then just um, how that, that show ends has very much this like relationship develops peace and yeah. war just destroys relationship. Uh, I did that ride and um, it was Really interesting looking at certain characters and wondering, like the characters that are super deep in their military dogma, like, are they going to be able to like get out of that in the face of what they're dealing with? Uh, Yeah, great ride. And then another, if you just like Mecca, this might be a plug for next season, but Darling in the Franks. Hey! um, If you really enjoyed like the Mecca fights, but with like something to think about, Darling in the Franks will give you incredible things to ponder. A rare plug for Darling in the Franks. <laughs> One of the most polarizing and unpopular animes in history. <laughs> yes. And I'm excited to figure out why. Uh, yeah, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Because I have talked to some people and I'm like, hey, you like Neon Genesis, right? Have you checked out Darling in the Franks? They're like, I hate that fucking show. Like, <laughs> why? And they're like, I, you'll have to watch it. I can't really get into it. It's like, Okay. Okay, this has been a pretty pretty cyclical by the book episode. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for coming on, Hayden. You've been a real pleasure, a real pro, as it were. <laughs> and uh, if if you have strong opinions on Darling and the Franks, maybe we could have you on again sometime. I would so look forward to it. We got a lot Very of spots cool. to fill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, are we ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, pen, pen, pals, Haro. Haro. Haro.